Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to The Referral with me, Dr. Curran. This is the show where I bust myths. I talk to world-leading experts and scientists and generally interesting people to find out more about how we can improve our lives on a day-to-day basis and improve our happiness as well as our health. Just straight facts and science. Today, I'm going to be talking to one of the first people in the world to pick up a really weird symptom of COVID, anosmia, a loss of smell. He was instrumental in creating the COVID Symptom Tracker app, basically the largest citizen database of tracking symptoms of COVID. And if you're wondering who this is, it's Tim Spector. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London. He also founded the Twins Research Unit at King's College, where they basically look at twins and find out what we can learn about health in the general population. He also co-founded the Zoe app, which was instrumental at picking up population symptoms when it comes to COVID. Epidemiology is the holy grail of medicine. To be honest, if epidemiology took off, I would be out of a job. I don't want to necessarily operate on people because I'm already dealing with a condition that someone has before it's been prevented. Epidemiology is looking for glitches in the matrix, patterns in the data to identify something before it even happens. Like Minority Report with Tom Cruise, but science. Now, I promise you all the information will be applicable to you in your daily life. Stay tuned to hear more like this. Nobody tells cancer patients about this. Nobody says, before you start your immunotherapy, really, we should be really boosting your gut microbes, pumping it full of, you know, the 30 a day, the fermented foods, the polyphenols. This is, this is, you know, make or break. Tim is also going to be asking me a question of his own. If there's one thing they taught you at medical school that you weren't taught, what would it be? And we've also got if it ducks like a quack. This is nothing to do with ducks, but it has plenty to do with quacks and all that nonsense quackery you hear about myths about medicine. And probably some of these things you still believe to this day. I'm going to dispel all those myths. And up very shortly, we've got crowd science. It's now your turn to take the floor and ask me any question you want. Steady on now. If you want to get in touch, contact me at thereferralpod.com. But before any of that, what the health? What the health is going on in the world of medicine, science and health? Let's take a look. What the health? Your DNA is in some pretty weird places. And I don't just mean in your body. We leave traces of ourselves everywhere we go. Just like snakes shed their skin, we shed hair, dead skin cells, we flush our urine and fecal matter down the drain into the environment, we cough, we spit, and half the population bleeds into the environment as well. And all of that biological waste contains DNA. This human DNA spillage can be accessed via the water, in the earth, and literally from thin air. It is in the air. And the samples of DNA that they can get from the environment is strong enough and in high enough concentrations to literally match the individual it came from. This is called human genetic bycatch. 
Now, these free-floating fragments of biological tissue, the eDNA or environmental DNA, is typically used by scientists to track invasive species, trace diseases, or even monitor biodiversity. But it could be used for nefarious purposes in the future. Like I said, the quality of the DNA that you can find there is so good you can even identify genetic mutations or even track a person's ancestry. So realistically, harvesting this DNA from the environment could allow you to track specific people or even specific ethnic groups. This could be abused. But let's not be so cynical and look at some of the beneficial opportunities. There's potential for forensic use in criminal investigations. You can literally go to a crime scene and catch the criminal's DNA from the air of the crime scene. It could help archaeologists uncover these hidden archaeological sites from that hidden human DNA. The one thing it does raise is an ethical issue about consent and privacy because currently there aren't any stringent laws about what you do with this eDNA. AI, artificial intelligence, might save humanity. You've probably heard lots of doom and gloom, that AI is going to take your jobs, it's going to turn into Skynet and destroy all humans, or worse, make them our slaves. But actually, AI might be able to prevent the antibiotic apocalypse. Now, it's not new information that we're running out of antibiotics that works against evolving strains of bacteria. They're becoming cleverer. They're becoming more resistant to the antibiotics we have. And eventually, we might reach a stage where we've got loads of multidrug-resistant bacteria and even a small cut could kill us. So, as you can see, antimicrobial resistance is becoming humanity's greatest threat. Worryingly, there's been fewer antibiotics discovered for several decades now as these superbugs become more and more commonplace. So what the hell does AI have to do with any of this? Well, scientists have created a new AI that can create a new antibiotic to kill a deadly superbug. So AI went through and searched through thousands of potential chemicals and found one that could be used to synthesize a brand new experimental antibiotic called abausin. And this was used to target one of the most problematic species of bacteria we have, Acinetobacter baumani. You may have not heard about this, but it's one of the three superbugs that the World Health Organization, the WHO, has named as a genuine critical threat. And it took AI just 90 minutes to sift through these thousands of chemicals to come up with that antibiotic which can target this strain of bacteria. Now, in lab experiments, they found that albalsin, this experimental antibiotic, could be used to treat this Baumani bacteria in mice. And it was also able to counteract Acinetobacter Baumani from human patient samples. As we know, there's a huge gulf between mice studies and then human studies, but this is very, very promising. Realistically, we're looking at AI-prescribed antibiotics by 2030, which isn't too far off. Interestingly, this experimental antibiotic doesn't work against any other species of bacteria, just A. baumani. The precision of this experimental antibiotic means it's less likely that drug-resistant strains of bacteria will evolve, and it also means fewer side effects. Hello, listeners of The Referral. It's me, Dr. Curran. Are you tired of scouring the internet for medical answers only to end up on shady websites? Is your For You page full of TikTok experts pushing miracle weight loss drugs and superfoods? There's so many myths and nonsensical health advice out there on the internet, but on our weekly crowd science episodes, I'm helping real listeners like you get the truth. Subscribe to the Referral Plus and you'll get access to additional crowd science episodes every week devoted entirely to answering your questions. Plus, as an added bonus, you'll enjoy ad-free listening of all our episodes. 
You can even try it for free. Just head over to the referral show page on Apple Podcasts and click on the try free button at the top of the page to start listening today. Have a question of your own? Visit theReferralPod.com and submit it. There is no question too weird or too awkward for me. So what are you waiting for? Don't let the internet deceive you. Subscribe now to the Referral Plus and start getting answers today. Okay, that's what the health and all that news done. It's time to meet Tim Spector. Let's go. Tim, thank you very much for joining me today. Great to be here. Good. And I understand you've already had six out of your 30 portions of fruit and veg already for the week. That's right. And I've done my intermittent fasting as well. Brilliant. More on that in a bit. But I mean, you by trade, you're an epidemiologist. You're a medical doctor and you've gone into epidemiology. And on the surface of it, it might not sound like a very you know, hot specialty or a sexy specialty. And is there anything that you've seen in the data, in the sort of correlation on a national epidemiological scale that is so unbelievable and you've had a hard time convincing people that we need to pay attention to this? Well, epidemiology comes and goes in favour. It's either the most boring area of, of research or it's the most exciting and important like in COVID. So uh, people need epidemiologists. Bit of epidemiology that I don't think anyone's really noticed is the correlations between obesity and the percentage of ultra processed foods that we're all eating. No doubt in every single country in the world, there's there isn't a single country I've seen that's bucking that trend that uh, we can't blame uh, the pandemic of obesity and diabetes and all the extra problems due to it, due to the rise of ultra processed foods. In the 70s, we thought we were going to run out of food. They'll be, all be starving people. Yeah. And now uh, it's gone way over the top. And many more people are, are dying from obesity than are, are dying from hunger. And you mentioned actually epidemiology. Obviously, it's important in picking up these trends in population health. And you mentioned it's sexy at certain points. And it's never been sexier than from 2020 onwards, when we were hit with the pandemic, the you know recurrent strains, different strains of COVID. And you were one of the first to get the Zoe COVID symptom tracker app out there and picking up anosmia, which was a very strange symptom, which has previously been associated with viral, you know, upper respiratory tract illnesses. But this, this is a quite an amazing thing to just pick up. Why are suddenly people getting these weird perceptions in their taste and smell? Actually, it's COVID. So what was that like, That those kind of the days leading up to it and the sort of few weeks leading up after that as well? I mean, I think those few months were the most exciting, adrenaline-fueled, exhausting uh, periods of my career. The Zoe team, to remind people, built this app in five days. Wow. And the government took about six months and then actually probably failed for their, their COVID track and trace mm. app with 100 times the budget and personnel. So that was an amazing feeling. And then because of social media, nothing else, no money backing, social media fueled this idea that people wanted to join something to help. So suddenly we had millions of people on this app. Yeah. We, we didn't expect, we had no clue where anyone would look at it at all, right? So this is this weird feeling, right? Yeah. You know, we just launched it in a void uh, and said, go for it. And then people embraced it. Yeah. Suddenly we had millions of people on it. And nothing, they were all telling us how important it was. The one thing I'm concerned about increasingly is 
you know, there's more than likely going to be future pandemics. And, you know, people might laugh at this, but since watching the uh, HBO show, The Last of Us, where they've got this fungal pandemic, that is a legitimate concern that people have. These infectious disease experts and epidemiologists have a concern that the next pandemic could be a fungal pandemic because we don't have vaccines against fungi. Fungi are just very strange organisms. Uh, they're not plants. They're not humans. And they're, you know, strange things. We have superbug fungi, which, you know, we don't have treatments against. Is there anything on the data that you can see that helps you predict the next pandemic? I No, I don't have any mar brilliant insights into the next pandemic other than what is public knowledge. Fungi are fascinating. We know very little about them very few people studying them. And uh, I think they play a key role in this this gut community that we've yeah. got that in a way needs all the different species Viruses, to play their role. Fungi. Just like in Yellowstone Park, you know, and we've ecosystem. Yeah, we you know, we've discovered this new parasite in in our in our guts that one in four people in the UK have. And I think um seven out of 10 people in Asia have, and all our ancestors had, called blastocystis, which you mm. might have heard of. And it was associated with traveler's diarrhea and used to get rid of it. Now it's a sign of absolute good health. We know it's like a fantastic predator inside our guts, and it um, we're eating microbes that are bad for our um, fat metabolism. So this kills off competitive bad microbes helps to you know reduce inflammation in the gut helps to reduce inflammation in the gut it reduces your blood lipid levels actually reduces your visceral internal fat and uh, in certainly in men at least it, it reduces blood pressure through mechanisms we've got no clue about but it's it's probably acting like that uh, the lone wolf security guard well you know, you know the whole story of that Yellowstone Park that the whole ecosystem fell apart when they Got rid of the, yeah. the wolves, put the wolves back in, suddenly it's all yeah. restored again. Now, we originally all had blastocystis, all our ancestors, all the old, uh, and we've basically killed it off for reasons we're not, we're not sure why, because we've got one, you know, <clears throat> only 25%. The US, it's, it's only one in 20 people have it, right? But that could be some interaction with an increased amount of ultra-processed foods, a decreased amount of fiber, which is not providing the substrate for that bacteria to survive. Yeah. And the US is the sort of the worst country on the planet, and it's the best place to test what's going wrong uh, with your health and your diet. So what are some absolute must-haves of health that you've seen in terms of people's habits that, you know, daily habits, small sustainable habits that people have to have? To have good health? Well, humans, we're actually much more individual than, mm. than we're led to believe. And that's why we can inhabit all these different environments, yeah. live off different diets, have different lifestyles. So very hard to summarize absolutely everything. Yeah. Not a so, one size fits all, but uh, you know, habits that okay. in the majority will provide good health. Uh, so the, the two pillars really are diet and exercise. Yeah. Uh, diet side long-term has to be good for the gut microbes. Mm. So if you look at all the blue zones, and there's actually quite a variety of diets in there, but the thing they all have in common is they all have variety. Um, you know, coming back to the, the 30 plants a week, yeah. they all have uh, fiber, 
and it's fresh ingredients, low in ultra-processed foods, and still doing exercise. They haven't been you know, confined to the armchair watching TV. And that seems to be a universal um, side of, of what I see wherever you're looking around the world. I mean, I, I find that often if I see patients in a clinic, you know, who've got gut issues or any number of things, the one of the common questions I get is, should I have you know, this supplement, that supplement. And I think too often people disregard the very basics, the very pillars of health, which is, you know, optimizing sleep, ensuring a, you know, higher fiber diet. So, you know, arbitrarily maybe aiming for that 30 uh, different types of plant foods a week, um, you know, ensuring they have a good bowel routine, stress regulation, movement. So not necessarily lifting weights, but any sort of movement, even in old age, having social contacts. And it's very difficult to almost unbrainwash people into thinking you first need to do these basics, but not paper over the cracks with, uh, you know, XYZ supplement from your local health shop? You know, every doctor knows, because that's the way we're, we're trained to give the quick fix anyway. Um, and doctors are really good about, they know mm. all about tablets, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, know about surgery uh, yeah. in your case. So quick fix, can you give a tablet to the patient? Get them out the, get them <laughs> out the, out the surgery quickly. Uh, we're not taught about, you know, nutrition and going into detail, asking a, a history, particularly in, the, in a culture such as the UK and also the US, there is no great food culture. So there's no real rules about food and people follow the latest trends. And that's taken us to this disastrous place mm. where, you know, we were told 20 years ago to avoid fat. So we go to a supermarket, all you see is you can't buy a, a yogurt that doesn't have low fat. Uh, and yet there's zero evidence that that is any any good for you and lots of evidence it's bad for you. Yeah. So 90% of the products people are seeing are actually bad for them, but they say they're good. So they're very confused and people don't really know what a good diet is. And we really need to educate everybody that, you know, a diet is reducing your ultra-processed foods. It's eating a variety of real foods. It's uh, eating the rainbow. It's, you know, it's getting all those colors in because they've got the the phytonutrients, uh, the famous polyphenols, which are rocket fuel for your gut microbes uh, and have all these antioxidant effects. It's getting people back to the traditional idea of having fermented foods, which in the UK has been long forgotten. Oh, yeah. Um, it's had a slight resurgence well, in the last 12 months, 24 months. But Yes. But, yeah. I mean, I know this because, you know, I've written three books on nutrition. Mm -hmm. First time I've, you know... I would go and talk about kefir and kombucha and even to a room full of GPs, yeah. only about you know, 10 would have heard of them. They think you're a hippie, you're yeah. prescribing all these newfangled things, but actually it's a cornerstone of health. Many of those countries that are doing well have fermented foods at the base of their diets as well. So the, whether you're in the mountains, uh, in Greece, you might be having your own, making your own mm. yogurt. In uh, Japan and Korea, they'd be having kimchi's, and uh, misos, which yeah. you know, and and all these koji varieties and these tofu's, all these f fermented ones. In India, you have got your lassi. Mm. Um, Scandinavians had it. Nearly, nearly everyone's got some fermented yogurt. Yeah, Brits and Americans, uh, Australians and Canadians that have completely lost any connection with that and see it as a rather freaky, weird thing to do, rather than as the magic health supplement. So instead of taking 
these multivitamin supplements, which not only have been proven not to work mm. in randomized controlled trials many times over, yeah. they are a complete distraction from people sorting out their diet. I mean, for me, when I talk about supplements, you know, a lot of people think, okay, I can still take, you know, fish liver oil and all these things. But actually, there is very little evidence to suggest that fish oil supplements actually do much unless you're pregnant or you've got a recent heart issue or something like that. There is very little evidence and inconsistent evidence to suggest that even cod liver oil does anything except make your urine more expensive. Absolutely. I mean, 99% of, of supplements, I say, have absolutely have either been shown not to work yeah. or have no evidence because no one's ever bothered because they know it won't, it won't do anything. It's a, it's a placebo effect. So when you tell people exactly what you've been saying, 30 grams of fiber a day, at least for an adult who doesn't have, you know, irritable bowel issues, maybe which fiber may be, you know, slightly contraindicated for in some cases. Well, no, only short term. I, mean, short I think term. you can build it up slowly. It doesn't yeah. mean you have to go to 30 immediately. That's the yeah. So, I mean, a high amount of fiber, 30 different types of plants uh, and vegetables uh, and on a weekly basis, which includes things like spices, coffee, uh, nuts and seeds, which people traditionally don't think as plant food, but actually it does count, which helps you to rack it up. Um, having the fermented uh, compounds in your food, kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, sourdough bread, all of these things. And when you say that and then you actually say oh these have got antioxidants polyphenols flavonoids it sounds like you know when you actually advise someone this is a real thing it almost sounds like you're grifting them but actually this is actual science and the real grift are things like probiotics the average person sitting at home thinking they need to you know drink their strawberry flavored probiotic drink it's like pissing in the wind with the you know trillions of bacteria we have you're saying that this little drink one size fits all for everyone is going to work for everyone's microbiome, which is as unique as your fingerprint. Astounds me. It was interesting because during COVID, we did do a test on a million people and said, we know how they'd co fared in COVID, the severity. And we said, were you taking any supplements or probiotics? Mm. Evidence was largely negative, except for females. If they took vitamin D, that it gets slightly less reported, less severe. Um, COVID symptoms. COVID. Could be biased. It was an observational study. Uh, it didn't have effect in males, so I didn't really believe it that much. Um, probiotics did, af did affect males and females and did have a slight beneficial uh, effect, even when adjusted for everything else. So I'm, I'm keeping uh, an open mind on it, uh, but listeners should be aware that most of the stuff they buy is either of low quality, yeah. the wrong microbe for their very individual gut yes. microbiome, which I think is important. You know, it may be that once we start to personalize, we can really move this forward. Um, but there are definitely probiotics, you know, for the ABS that have been proven to work. that are definitely worth some people taking it, but always they're destined to fail in many people because they don't have the same community. Mm. It's like using, you know, the same fertilizer in the Arctic and yeah. uh, it, in, the in the Sahara and in the Congo, you know, it's not going to work. Mm. There is a species of bacteria that contains a gene encoding for an enzyme that only exists in the sushi eating population in Japan, where 
they've got a bacteroidis species of bacteria, which is found in an American person's gut and a Japanese person's gut. But the key difference is at some point that species of bacteria in you know a native Japanese person has assimilated this cell wall digesting enzyme uh, that usually digests red algae or the nori seaweed that you get in sushi. And it's only found in Japan, even though people eat sushi all over the world. I think for me, showing that these bacteria are almost evolving alongside us to help us to maximize the nutrients from food is fascinating to see. And more and more, I mean, now there's you've spoken about precision nutrition. We're appreciating that this microbiome, the community of viruses, archaea, fungi and bacteria that live inside us contribute more than just to gut health. But as you've, uh, you know, demonstrated in studies, possibly even, you know, mood and dementia. The sushi story is is great because it does show you that we can adapt to, by using microbes, to eat new sources of food. And what I love about the microbiome, it's not like your genes, right? Mm. All you can do is whinge about your parents with your, gene, yeah. with your genes, right? Why do you give me those genes? But it, but it is but partially, microbiome, you can... It's genetic as well. It's not inherit. Very. Hardly any. What, 10%, 12%? At most. Most recent has about 8%. Of all the things I've looked at, the least genetic. So it's all environmental factors which influence the microbiome, things you are doing in your daily life. So diet, exercise, interactions with, you know, early exposure to pets, for example, influence your autoimmune disease risk. Yeah, and it's, you know, whether you live in cities or towns, whether you get rolled in the dirt, whether you, uh, you know... Uh, close to nature or not, how many courses of antibiotics you mm. had, which is probably one of the major reasons we've lost so many microbes compared yeah. to uh, tribes and groups that aren't exposed to antibiotics. It's every time you get an infection, yeah. you, you change it. Stress, sleep, diseases, inflammation, you know, level of body fat, all the drugs, at least 50% of t drugs tested so far are interacting with your gut microbes. So whether a drug works for you or not is going to be down to those gut microbes, hmm. particularly things like antidepressants. And yeah. if you don't have those right microbes uh, or you have the wrong ones, it can switch it off. It's what? also true in cancer. Um, I was a coordinator of a, one of the biggest uh, melanoma trials of immunotherapy looking at microbiome. And the, the sort of conclusions of the study were that if you had a poor microbiome at the beginning of your treatment, in that worst group, we did we did over two hundred people. It was mm. it was a mass. These people end stage cancer. Yeah, uh, they get twelve months immunotherapy is their last chance. And if you're in that group with low poor gut microbiome, it, once you'd adjusted for everything else, all other factors, you had you were twice as likely to fail your treatment really? and likely to you know not make it as someone who had uh, a good healthy microbiome, and. Nobody tells cancer patients about this. Nobody says, before you start your immunotherapy, really we should be really boosting your gut microbes, pumping it full of, you know, the 30 a day, the fermented foods, the polyphenols. You've, this, is, this is, you know, make or break. When I'm doing a major surgery in big centres in the UK, uh, which have access to CPET testing, where we do several weeks 
of prehabilitation before surgery, where we make the make sure the patient stops smoking, exercises, maybe lift low, uh, you know, weights if they can, generally improving their pre-morbid condition. So the surgery will be more of a success, less complications, faster recovery, less pain, etc. It sounds like this could be a component in the prehabilitation. Well, totally with you on this, the cancer people for having any chronic disease really that involves the immune system should be trained to do that. And often in cancer, things happen very fast. So you know, you can understand why people get put on drugs without any chance, because otherwise Mm -hmm. they're going to die. But often it's been three years before they got the original tumour, and that's when they should have been told, you know, you've got three years to get your immune system as good as you can possibly get it. That's going to be, you know, double the effect of the drug, you know? So do something about it. Most people are not. That's probably why we have such poor cancer rates in yeah. this country, because still eating ultra-processed foods, etc. All our foods are never tested on the gut microbiome. So I think, you know, the future, certainly whether it's 5, 10, 15 years away, it looks like we are headed towards a future where the tiny passengers, you know, become front seat drivers. And uh, this is a really enlightening conversation. Thank you very much, Tim. Pleasure. So, Tim, you had a question for me. I don't know what it is, so I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but fire away. If there's one thing that taught you at medical school that you weren't taught, what would it be? Uh, it's hard to narrow that down to one, one. thing. Um, <laughs> of a hundred. What's the top thing? I think equal first is I wish I knew more about um, women's health at medical school. Um, you know, it's only once I became a surgeon seeing lots of young women with abdominal pain that was query appendicitis that wasn't appendicitis and actually ended up being adenomyosis, endometriosis, which you see on a diagnostic laparoscopy, uh, but also learning more about nutrition. When I was in medical school, I fell, um, you know, victim to all of these fitness influences of, you know, the early 2000s who used to talk about, you know, somatotypes. You need to uh, eat because you're a mesomorph or an endomorph. And, you know, that whole somatotype theory was created by a psychologist uh, in the 1940s and it's completely debunked. So nutrition and women's health, I think, are lacking in medical school. Good tips for the next generation. Tim, thank you very much for coming on and chatting about all things gut health, epidemiology. I think there's lots of interesting insights here. Uh, Where can people follow you online? Uh, Instagram is easiest, Tim Spector. Um, They can look at my work uh, also through the the Zoe podcast, Science and Nutrition. And they can do citizen science also through the free Zoe Health Study app. And also my books, the most recent, most comprehensive, Food for Life, uh, is uh, out now. And it will cover, you know, a lot of what we've spoken about today in a lot of detail as well. It covers absolutely everything you need to know about uh, nutrition in your gut. So thank you very much to Tim Spector. That was fascinating. I learned a lot and I really hope you did as well. And now it's time for, you guessed it, if it ducks like a quack. I want to say I get really pissed off with the lies and misinformation and generally all the nonsense you hear about online. But to be honest, it provides me with endless content. And it's just so laughable that I want to share some of these complete myths with you as well. So let's get to it. 
The first one, if you lose your sense of smell, you 100% have COVID-19. This is 100% a myth. Now, we do know that COVID-19 can give you a loss of your sense of smell, anosmia, but it can also give you a loss of taste as well and alter your taste perception. But this isn't the only thing that can cause that. Let's break it down by cause. You can actually have a problem with the lining of your nose. You can have sinusitis, an inflammation of your sinuses. You can have hay fever, non-allergic rhinitis, a number of things which generally cause inflammation up there, even ranging from something as simple as the common cold or any sort of flu, which just makes things bunged up up there. There's a bunch of things which can cause a loss of smell, anosmia. It can be a problem with the inner lining of your nose. Something as simple as COVID-19, a common cold, smoking, hay fever, sinusitis and inflammation of your sinuses. So all of these things can cause that. You can have certain conditions which actually obstruct the airflow into your nose, nasal polyps, more growths in your nose. You can have a deviated septum, also very common. And finally, you can have things which damage the olfactory bulb. The olfactory bulb is the bunch of nerves and neurons, which are basically those spell receptors which plug into your brain. You could consider the olfactory bulb as an outpouching of your brain. So damage to parts of the brain can also affect your sense of smell. Things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, strokes, epilepsy, all of these things can affect your sense of smell. And even simple things like aging. As you age, your olfactory neurons will degrade, they will be replaced less quickly, so your sense of smell and even taste will be affected. Now, this second one really irks me. It's completely safe to take herbal remedies to cure diseases. The example I always give when I'm talking about herbal remedies, and trust me, I'm not against herbal remedies. I come from a culture where Ayurvedic medicine and herbal remedies are an important part of the culture. But there are some cases where you do need surgery, where you need chemotherapy, you need radiotherapy, you need actual medication to cure a disease, not just herbs. For example, Steve Jobs had a specific and rare type of pancreatic cancer. He had a neuroendocrine tumor, an islet cell tumor. Now, Pancreatic cancer are usually, the bulk of them, are adenocarcinomas and the prognosis is abysmal. We're talking about several months survival rate. But with islet cell tumors or neuroendocrine tumors, they are actually relatively curable and they can be operated on if they're picked up early and you can actually cure that type of pancreatic cancer. That is the type of pancreatic cancer that Steve Jobs had. Unfortunately, he went on all sorts of juice diets and herbal supplements. He delayed surgery. He delayed any other additional therapies like chemotherapy until he got to the stage where his cancer had progressed and metastasized to his liver. And then at that point, it was inoperable. You couldn't do surgery to remove it anymore. And sadly, he passed away. So this is a prime example of where traditional surgery and other gold standard therapies were bypassed for non-traditional, sometimes untested and unproven herbal remedies. And I'll give you a specific case relating to me. Now, I had a patient I was about to operate on. And as usual, we ask all patients if they're on any blood thinning medication or any medication which can affect their blood clotting ability. As a surgeon, I want their blood clotting to be as optimized as possible because I want to reduce the amount of blood they will lose during surgery. And also you need blood to clot well for wound healing, etc., etc. Now, I asked the patient, were they on any medication? The patient said, absolutely not. It turns out during the surgery, the patient was just oozing a lot. They were bleeding a lot and it wasn't clotting as well as I expected the blood to clot. 
Anyway, the surgery was all fine. Afterwards, I asked the patient again, is there anything you take, any herbal remedies, any herbal supplements? The patient told me he didn't think this was a medication or a supplement, but they were taking something called St. John's Wort. St. John's Wort and various other herbal supplements and remedies can interfere with blood clotting and actually make the blood a lot thinner. This can be a nightmare for surgeons. Not only that, but there are other medications like ashwagandha, which can actually interfere with hyperthyroidism and other thyroid-related medications as well. So if you do take any natural supplements or herbal remedies, and you take other medications as well for other conditions, speak to your doctor because there can be lots of interactions between them both, which can make your existing medication less effective. This is a bit of a nuanced one. If you start to get forgetful, you have dementia. Now, there's a couple of things to unpick here. Memory loss on its own does not equal dementia. And even before that, dementia is an umbrella term. Dementia includes various types of neurodegeneration, which includes Parkinson's dementia, Pick's disease, Alzheimer's, etc., etc. There are loads of things which come under that umbrella of dementia. So naturally, if you have neurodegeneration, one of the things which will be affected is your memory function capacity. But there are various other signs of Alzheimer's dementia or Parkinson's dementia, which may be specific to that person, and not everyone will have the same symptoms. Now, if you do have, you know, progressive memory loss and you are concerned about Alzheimer's dementia or you have a strong family history of something like that, and there are other symptoms as well, general forgetfulness with other things, a general slowing down of various other things, and you're losing some hand-eye coordination and other reflexes, it may be worth speaking to your doctor to maybe think about getting assessed for these things instead of just relying on Wikipedia entries for your diagnoses. You guys always seem to ask me all sorts of weird questions. One of the most common things I get, surprisingly, is why is my poo green? Now, I can answer that for you maybe another time, but today Latifa has emailed in with a very own burning question. Why do I get the same spots and pimples in the same place on my face, but never anywhere else? They're always in the exact same place, usually along my jawline. Now, without actually seeing you, it will be difficult to assess. I don't know your dermatological history, what medication you're on, and your skin type and various other things. But just purely based on what you've said and looking at simple human biology, there's a couple of things which I think may be causing that. There may be certain areas in your skin where there's a higher production of sebum, this kind of oily substance produced by our skin. And along your jawline may be one of those places where more of that sebum collects and you can block the follicles and cause pimples and acne and similar blemishes to the skin to form along those lines. Another thing, more often than not, when we're at the desk, we're on our phones or just doing something on a computer, we might be touching our faces a lot. And obviously, any germs and bacteria from our fingers then transferred onto the skin of our face, especially along your jawline. If you're leaning against it like this or holding your phone, your jaw is most likely to be affected by that. So one of the things which might be worth trying is actually touching your face less. I know it sounds silly, but we touch our faces a lot. So what Washing your hands a lot and then trying to reduce face touching a lot and also washing the screen of your mobile phones or anything else that you put to your ears might be worth doing as well. Now, if you'd like to ask a question just like Latifa did, feel free to get in touch at theReferralPod.com. If you want, you can be totally anonymous and just use your first name. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Referral. Yes, I am a real doctor, but it's important to know that if you require specific medical advice, please contact your own doctor. And please remember, nothing on this show is intended to provide or replace specific medical advice that you would receive from your own healthcare worker. This has been a Sony Music production. Production management was Jen Mystery. Videos were by Ryan O'Meara. Studio engineer was Gulliver Tickle. Music was by Josh Carter. Grace Lakewood and Hannah Talbot were the producers. And Gaynor Marshall is the executive producer. And special thanks to Chris Skinner. If you enjoyed this podcast, you're going to love the previous ones and future ones as well for a lot more evidence-based actionable tips. So hit the follow button and just humor me one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, drop a rating and I'll see you next time. And that's a wrap. Make sure you subscribe for weekly episodes and hit that notification bell so you don't miss when the next episode's out. Catch you next time.